0: What's happened there, sir? Uh, I've killed my partner, uh, my ex-partner. So you've killed your ex-partner? I'm pretty sure she's dead there. Yep, she's not moving at all. So I'm pretty sure she's dead. There are people around us whose lives are not what they seem walk among us, but carry an invisible burden. They are victims of domestic abuse. Well over three million adults and children in this country. I've been writing about the crisis of domestic abuse in Australia for the past six years now. And there's no question that it's a crisis. A mother of three was killed in an axe attack just a week after... Jane the- Robertson <sighs> decided Katie Haley wasn't allowed to leave him, so he bashed her to death with an iron... Oh, no. Hannah Clark's estranged husband doused her and their young children in petrol and then set fire to the car they were in. Too often, a case of family violence is only exposed when a victim is killed. My sister's
1: ex-boyfriend to kill
0: The vast majority of people will never report to police. You're just too scared to ask questions. Whatever he do, you don't ask questions. And most abusers won't be held accountable. She left a man, she paid for it with her life. The visions of what I imagined he did to her, they stopped me from sleeping. It's one of the most important stories going on in this country right now and one of the most urgent problems for us to solve. And it is solvable, but not until we understand what it looks like. I'm going to take you to the people on the front lines of this crisis, the victims, the people who help them, and the people who abuse them. Victims of domestic abuse are mostly just like you and me. They fall in love and they hope for the best.
2: All I was trying to do was shut her up, you
1: know? The story is always the same. He wanted to know her whereabouts at all times. I just snapped, said to her, see what you made me do.
3: lovely listeners and welcome back to crime analyst and part two of my interview with award-winning author and investigative journalist jess hill so what you just heard was the trailer for jess's docuseries see what you made me do and we talk about it more in this episode So let's jump straight back in. Now, where we left off in part one, Jess was explaining exactly what women's police stations are and how they work in Argentina. And I think where people have misunderstood women's
2: police um, here in Australia and the work of Kerry Carrington, because she's the researcher um, who's done the most work on women's police stations, is they think it's just like, oh, you just take the men out of the police force. And I can see why they might go, well, what difference is that going to make? Because plenty of situations in which female cops have made really bad calls, you know, or been victim blamers, all that stuff. The point is, is you don't just take the men out. You actually re- reform the idea of police entirely. And in Argentina, I think it's really important to note that these women's police stations don't report to the Ministry of Police. They actually report to an entirely different minister and their mandate is all about protection and prevention. It's not about necessarily punitive responses, although that is obviously part and part of what they can, how they can respond. So they operate in coordination with the domestic violence sector, like in, in the, um, in each little hub or police station. There are police, there are domestic violence caseworkers, there are financial counselors. Um, legal aid. There are people to look after victim survivors' kids. You know, it is a place of care. It's not a place to bring perpetrators. They don't have cells. It's so the whole point is, is this is only a place to receive people who are in trauma and it's set up that way. So inside, you know, they've got paintings on the walls. It's brightly colored. There's, you know, it's, it's, they, they, Fit them out like lounge rooms for people to relax in, and while the victim survivor is being interviewed, the kids are cared for. So the whole point is that it is so different to a police station and to a police response that what and what they're trying to do is encourage women to come forward before it becomes a criminal matter, so that it can be on they can be on the record. And I think what's really important. And relevant particularly to Australia is that when women go to these police, it's up to them as to how they respond. Do they want a punitive response or not? Do they want police just to go around to the house and evict their partner or ex-partner? Do they want them just to go and talk to them? Maybe they want to stay in the relationship, but they just want their partner to know that they've got eyes on them. And to and to give them some incentive to go and do the work that they need to change or to stop their violence. So there's a whole suite of responses in which the police are really on the side of the victim survivor, doing whatever is required to get them better protected and better safety. And for me in Australia, like I've been advocating for this pretty hard, but I've been called a casserole feminist. For wanting to have some form of policing open to victims of domestic abuse. And I find that really astonishing because it's, I I just, I don't see how it's responsible to say that you want to abolish something entirely and not have an alternative in place ready to go. Otherwise what we're looking at is it's, is it either status quo or abolition? Because I think it's really interesting to look at what's happened in Minnesota where the George Floyd killing occurred, where there's a gigantic community groundswell towards abolishing the police force there and towards totally defunding police. And there's been really concerted efforts basically to get community buy-in to, to totally revolutionize the way they do law in that state. And they found it really hard because the majority of people don't want to see police abolished. That doesn't, so, you know, it's where I totally just continually come back to is what will give better protection to victim survivors this year and the next? If we're looking at reforming the way we respond, reforming laws, reforming police, You know, reforming our ideas of, of power and law enforcement. That doesn't mean that later down the line, ideas around abolition, ideas around community responses can't be progressed. These things can actually all happen in concert, but you can't just rip one system out without another system, both ready to go (laughs) and approved of by the community. Otherwise it just is theoretical and you're saying it's status quo or bust. And I just refuse the idea that it's status quo or bust.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's black and white like that, that it's all or nothing. And it just can't be. There are women and there are very dangerous perpetrators that do need a criminal justice response. And I think many of those saying that they don't, they need to work some of the serial killer cases that I've worked, that actually they could have been stopped really early on in their career, their criminal career, when they were abusing their partner. Mm. You know, Jeremy Brudos is a, a case in point Dharma. Um, there have just been so many of them who start with controlling behaviors in their relationship because they do have significant relationships with others. So mm. yes, there has to be accountability and how you treat each case. Well, we haven't got the skilled people to sit there and make a decision about how you treat each case not at the moment, Mm. but without having another, this is the model and this is what it looks like, it sounds incredibly irresponsible to just say, get rid of one system, Mm. but not to have the answer of, well, what works? What do we know works? And we know perpetrator accountability does work for some. Mm. You know, you showcase some of the, the breathing space men who talked. It sounded authentically and honest to me in terms of their own experiences of abusing their significant partner Mm. and they genuinely wanted to change Mm. and that's great if you have funding to run those programs with men who really do want to change Mm. and they're invested because it's not easy but there's a whole plethora of others who do not want to and what's more they take great pleasure of being reinforced by others of cheating the system and harming as many people as they possibly can Mm. and so we have to understand that it's not just one size fits all. Mm.
2: And I think also you know it's really important to say and I'm just actually working on an audio documentary series called The Trap which is all about coercive control but you know spends a number of episodes looking at the systems that respond to it and we've got a two-part on police really questioning are they fit to respond to domestic abuse because I think there is a an existential crisis here for police, because actually over the past decade, with the increase in reporting, domestic abuse has become their core business, and yet there are there's a significant percentage of police officers, especially in the general duties, who do not want to respond to it, who don't believe victim survivors unless there's some heinous physical violence that's really black and white right in front of them, and. Who are can be dangerous when they're responding, particularly in situations that involve First Nations women or minority, you know, other minority women or women who have criminal backgrounds, who they can just sort of dismiss as crims and you know scrotes, as one police officer um, described it to me. So I think that in amongst like there's all these conversations that have to happen concurrently. One is around law reform. And I think that's necessary because we have to be able to map perpetrator patterns and and behaviors. The second concurrent conversation is about how are those laws enforced? And we're finally having really honest and upfront conversations about police. So what's the culture like? This brotherhood culture of not being able to have the police have policing questioned this whole issue of officer involved domestic violence, which is profound. And not just officer-involved domestic violence, where the police are actually perpetrators, but also officer-involved sexual assault of other police. Officer-involved sexual harassment, where there are, are crimes being committed by police within the police force. And in Australia, the last time we really saw this become a big issue was around the Royal Commissions and inquiries in the 80s and 90s, so the Fitzgerald Inquiry in Queensland and the Wood Royal Commission in New South Wales, which really looked into the systemic corruption in both police forces, and they purged the force of a number of dirty cops, right? And it was very famous and and well documented process in New South Wales, particularly. It led to a number of suicides. I mean, it was it was like a total routing of police. But particularly, it focused on how they were cooperating with criminal gangs and and other sort of forms of criminality. What that didn't focus so much on, in on, because there was so much corruption to deal with on the surface, was the interpersonal crime and the interpersonal breaches of ethics. And there's a sense amongst police forces in New South Wales and Queensland that if you survived Fitzgerald and you survived Wood, that you're one of the clean ones. And what I've been sort of positing in, at various forums I've been speaking at recently, including the Queensland Parliament, is, is it actually time for us to look at a new inquiry into what is happening within police forces that is making them so unreliable and so unable to do the job that they are paid to do which is to protect the public some people might say that's not what they're paid to do they're paid to protect property that you know etc etc but let's just take it on face value <laughs> that we've got we're paying police as taxpayers to protect us
3: and well in, England, in in the uk and also in america they swear that oath to protect and serve precisely so public protection is part of their duty it's just that some decide who's worthy of protection exactly, and who's not
2: exactly and that's what we're seeing in australia and we're seeing you know systemic racism and misogyny setting a culture where if you want to resist that you are seen as someone who's perhaps not safe and therefore someone who can then be, you know, profiled as a dog or as someone who's going to dob you in if you do the wrong thing at a domestic violence call If you try to write it off, they're going to tell your superior, you know, so they become an unsafe person to be doing policing with. And those people then get ostracized. So you get the good cops trying to do the right thing, trying to respond to family violence, um, adequately who get ostracized and end up leaving the force. And I've spoken to a number of police who've been in that position. So. This second stream, where we're talking about policing culture, is it fit to respond to domestic abuse? This is something police really need to take seriously because the like a, a very large chunk of their funding is to respond to domestic abuse. And the analogy that occurred to me a little while ago was that if you had firefighters, a vast like a vast number of firefighters who loved responding to house fires, but really didn't like Putting out bushfires because it's just too hot, too big. It's impossible that we're never going to be able to put them out. And if you had those cops turning up at a grass fire at the edge of a big reserve and, and just saying, ah, oh, it'll probably burn itself out. It's no big deal. And you know what? Maybe the guy who said it had a good reason for setting it. Like those firefighters would not only be evicted from the, the force but would be probably criminally charged. And yet we have police officers acting in that way to domestic violence callouts every day. So we need to dramatically increase our expectations that these incremental improvements in policing since the 80s, while that's positive, that it's improved, it's not enough. And if they can't actually change the culture to the point where it is a reliable place to report domestic violence, which is now their core business, then there needs to be some more radical thoughts put into how do we reform this? And that's where Kerry Carrington's work around police stations for women. Do you have a specialist forced responding to gendered violence? That And that's all they do. So you don't just get general duties cops turning up at a house going, Oh man, this is going to be so much paperwork. I'm just going to write this off as a disturbance and I'm not going to even put it in the file as domestic violence. Therefore, it's not going to show up next time there's a call out. It's not going to show up that there's been any report of domestic violence. If when you see that happening time and time again and you go to coronial inquests of women who've been murdered, you trace it back and it's like these are the breadcrumbs that led to that murder. This cop writing it off this cop not taking it seriously, this domestic violence order not being served. So maybe you need police who are passionate about it and that's all they do. That's a real question, I think, that's live for
3: police forces or
2: police services in Australia.
3: And across the globe. Yeah. I think it's, you know, certainly what I experienced at New Scotland Yard and you had some who were, you know, people call it passionate, but it's actually just doing your job and doing your job well. That's what what I always say to my teams. It's just about doing your job well Mm. and not judging or blaming, but asking the right questions and having accountability when someone doesn't do their job well, Mm. like you would in any sort of environment or business. But the problem is it's the lack of accountability and responsibility taking. And certainly from the culture where I came from at New Scotland Yard, I was right in the mix of turning it from a it's just a domestic to your next domestic violence call out could be your next murder. Mm. And I saw the cultural shift. I was part of driving that change. But then the problem comes when you as the leaders have driven that change, you move on. Mm. Someone comes in, they dismantle Mm -hmm. that empire, and they create something new. So you just get this revolving door. And I think that that's where women, particularly, you know, female victims, they pay. They pay the price Mm. of that lack of continuity and accountability. And when I was working in the Met, I was the first person to profile domestic violence offenders, as you know. Professor Betsy Stanko had said to me, it's never been done before in the world of looking at police intelligence and tracking these dangerous and violent men. That's why even I was so shocked that one in eight of them who were raping and committing serious violence, I'm not even talking about coercive control, that they were red-striped through my database, and they were the men that we started targeting first, and I was horrified by what they were doing. Mm. We, unfortunately, initially, when I first started doing doing the research, out of 450 of them, the most dangerous, only two of them were convicted, Mm. and the longest sentence was 14 months. So the message they kept receiving was, carry on, mm. carry on. And for the police that I kept interacting with and asking them questions, why didn't you? Why did you take his DNA? He would say, it's just about consent, mm. you know, that yes, sex happened. I said, well, he could be raping other women if he's raping her. Mm. And then we started to get these clear-ups and... You start to sow these seeds and change at the front line, and then you more officers come on board and think, "Wow, we can get more clear-ups," and actually that now makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we were changing the culture of a, a group of us, a small group of us, and that's where we wrote the book, "Policing Domestic Violence," and where my work on serial perpetrators came from. But it, it was the lack of the continuity. Mm. That's the problem. So I do agree. You know, I've always said leadership, aptitude and attitude. Really important that you get that right. And what I saw in your documentary, particularly with the female superintendent and others in Buenos Aires and some of the survivors talking, was that they were believed from the start. Mm. They were in the right environment that helped them feel supported. The nuanced detail of their experience was being validated. Mm -hmm. And that's so important, Mm. Because most oftentimes men don't experience this stuff like we do, so it's outside their sphere of experience, therefore, it can't have possibly happened. That's what I tend to see unfortunately, it can't have happened it's never happened to me therefore i I don't believe you, mm. and that's where we get the constant judgment and the lack of validation, the secondary victimization and for me and just for listeners i I still remember Hannah Clark's case, like it was yesterday of watching that break on the news. Mm. And in 2020 and her three children, Trey, Alia and Leana, who were set on fire by their father. And the news reports initially were father and three children found dead. Mm. Nothing really about mum. And then I started to see some of the news reports coming out about all his. Credentials and his sporting achievements and all these things that he's done. And I'm like, where's mum? What's happened to mum? This sounds awful. And then I hear a police officer give a 15-minute interview. And I literally, Jess, I mean, I wasn't very well at the time, but I jumped off of the sofa. I could barely speak, but I was squeaking and, and screaming because I was so incensed by what he said on this 15-minute press conference. And you remember it well probably at the seventh minute where he said, we're keeping an open mind, but we need to understand what drove him to do this or whether he was a domestic violence perpetrator. And wow, to be hearing that in 2020, yeah, I just, we didn't know the full details of the case, but actually at that time, they knew that he was a domestic violence perpetrator. It's the job that I always used to do in the Met as soon as there was some case that hit the news. Any history, Laura, any issues for us? and you do a desktop review, and you realise very quickly whether there are any issues for you, and then you have to think about, well, what went on, as well as let the investigators do their job. Mm, mm. But I was just so angry, and as part of your documentary, it was so devastating but good to hear from Sue and Lloyd, Mm. mum and grandmother and grandfather and dad, of their perspective, and they talked about all the red flags that were present. (laughs) On a
1: quiet morning in Brisbane's Camp Hill last February, 31-year-old Hannah Clark and her three children, Aaliyah, six, Layana, four, and Trey, three, were on the school run when they were doused in petrol and set alight by her estranged husband, Rowan Baxter. The family had just driven out of the driveway when they were ambushed. They
0: came in, Sue told me, and, yeah, whole world just collapsed.
1: Despite having burns to most of her body, Miss Clark calmly and clearly told first responders what happened as evidence before she was rushed to hospital and died that afternoon. Proud. Not surprised. She was always yeah, so very strong. Yeah. And she would have wanted to make sure he paid really made sure he paid the murders shocked the nation and sparked calls for domestic violence reform there was no excuse there could never be an excuse no buts the blame lived and dies with him Mm -hmm. 12 months on the clerks are still processing their grief
0: still difficult i think it's getting harder Now, knowing that they're not coming home, we're not going to see them again.
1: Through their charity, The Small Steps for Hannah Foundation, they've made it their mission to see controlling behaviour like what their daughter was subjected to for years made a crime. He knew where Hannah was. He would turn up at places quite unexpectedly.
0: She would notice her handbag had been rifled through and things like that. And then he would also control what the children did. And then he would force sex on Hannah every night. And if she didn't comply, he would sulk for days and not speak to her. That's the worst thing, it's not physical. There's no marks, so it's very hard to pick.
1: Carolyn Robinson runs charity Beyond DV and wants robust laws put in place to protect families.
0: We want laws that have teeth. Because with coercive control, what we do see happening here with the women we support is that two, three, four years after they've left their abusive relationship, coercive control is still alive and well in their relationships with their ex-partners. And that very often involves the children
1: coercive control is a pattern of intimidation, isolation, cyber-stalking, emotional, mental and financial abuse that those in the domestic violence sector are all too familiar with.
0: They can also control what you wear. Hannah
1: was never allowed to wear pink or shorts, which was quite difficult when she did CrossFit. The state government says it will make it a crime within this term. The Attorney-General, Shannon Fentiman, says initial consultation will start soon. We'll be working with police, our prosecutors, our domestic and family violence services and legal experts to make sure this works. Training and rolling out a public education campaign will also be part of the changes. The police service supports coercive control becoming an offence and is already training officers in how to identify it and gather evidence. It's not just behaviours, it's texts, it's telephone calls, it's emails, it might be financial records. So it's identifying early what needs to be collected and collecting that efficiently as we can and making sure that is presented to court. The United Kingdom is leading the way in criminalising non physical forms of domestic violence. England and Wales were the first in the world to legislate against coercive control in 2015. Scotland followed in 2018, and it's likely Queensland's laws will be modelled off those.
2: Yeah, it was actually, I watched that police, that press conference. I was sitting in the makeup chair about to go on television to talk about it and honestly the first thing my brain went to is just like did did he just say that what what does that mean like does he mean what he thinks he said and my and my thing was like okay has this guy today turned up to a smoldering car where four people have been murdered and is just not in his right mind you know that was that's sort of taking the de- benefit of <laughs> giving the benefit of the doubt but I think that it really highlighted that basic default position in policing, which is what did she do to make him do this? Cause it wasn't just like what drove him to do this in terms of like, you know, generic factors. It was like, has there been reports of, of abuse from the other side? I mean, like it was this whole thing of keeping an open mind was very particular about like was, was Hannah Clark the primary victim prior to this homicide? It was just like, wow. Because first and foremost, actually, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he killed his three children and his ex-wife. Like whether or not she was being abusive in that situation, for him to kill the children... Like, anyway, so, yes, my brain explodes too at, um, at, at hearing that. But, I, but, yeah, I just didn't know how to interpret at the time. Sue and Lloyd have been so amazing. They are quietly such strong and powerful advocates for coercive control awareness and law reform in Queensland where they live. I've met them a number of times and sat in on one of the sessions that Sue runs with another woman, Carolyn Robinson at Beyond DV and four young women who will sit and talk about all the different parts of the power and control wheel and how they experience those to mums and daughters and fathers and sons to educate them on what coercive control looks and feels like. And they, Sue is so determined, as is Lloyd, to get people to understand coercive control and to see it not just as red flags but to see the torture that that puts that, that that coercive control is this is not just a red flag for future homicide or future violence that it is a torturous process in and of itself so there are some really powerful community members in Australia who are picking up the baton particularly from Rosie Batty, who really made this a community issue again after it being so subterranean for so many years. They're picking up the baton from Rosie and taking it into this new area of really focusing on coercive control. And we've actually got to a point where, I mean, Queensland Police Service, there are some very big problems with Queensland Police, but we are seeing, at least from senior command, some real enthusiasm to getting trained up and responding to coercive control. And they've even looked at the data in terms of their call-outs, 107,000 family violence call-outs on the books. Upwards of 80% of them had features of coercive control. I've actually not come across any other police data in the world that's actually quantified that. So what they're saying to police force, police services around Australia is, this is the vast majority of the work you're responding to. You're not just responding to one-off incidents. You may think you are. You're not just responding to mutualized violence where it takes two to tango. You may think you are, but you are actually responding to coercive control. And that's what we need to be doing a lot better.
3: And that was the mantra that myself and two police officers had when we trained every frontline parade, first time, right time. And if you see it in its totality and you deal with it effectively, You won't be going back to the same house the same people over and over again and so it's a false economy for police to think that they can turn and burn go there Mm -hmm. leave Mm -hmm. because they're going to keep going back and actually it will escalate Mm. and i think sue and lloyd described it so well actually that torturous insidious that hannah did everything right she left she did everything that she would have been advised to do and more they put security into the house and she tried to play by the rules and do everything right. And the problem for me that I have is what happens when you have victims who do everything right, but they're felled by the professionals who are there to protect them because they're not joining up all these behaviors together. Yes. And that's the power of, I think the documentary, the book. It's why I do so much media work now, because we can reach hundreds of thousands, millions and billions of people through a one-hour, three-hour documentary or a podcast. And I hear from hundreds of people, literally every month, who email me to say, you've just described me Mm, mm. everything you just said. And I wasn't ready to hear it before, but I've been listening to you in my ears because it's so intimate on a podcast. And then they take a decision, but they're taking an informed decision and they're reaching out to the right people or I'm networking them in. And you can really make the biggest difference even just by a podcast like this talking about it. But I think Sue and Lloyd just described perfectly that Hannah tried to play by his rules, yeah. did everything that he wanted. He told her he, she couldn't wear pink, she couldn't wear a bikini, all the things off of the beach, all the things that to anybody else would sound outrageous. But she was having to live by those rules. Yeah. And in the end, she says enough is enough and she leaves and she goes to live with mom and dad. But, of course, he knows where she is and he wasn't a person who was going to be rejected.
1: No, and
2: she was still worried about him. You know, the night before he killed them, he was saying he was going to kill himself, you know, and she was worried about him and she never thought that he would be a danger to the children. And this, you hear this from, you know, women all the time but she had talked to her mum about drawing up a will because she knew he was going to kill her and she wanted to make sure he wouldn't have custody of the children. That's So I think that threat of self-harm on the behalf of the perpetrator is often what keeps women and, and even kids on the hook because I feel like if I make a choice that will Get greater safety for me, it will mean harm for you. And I'm so used to prioritizing you that I don't even prioritize myself anymore. And that's certainly what was happening um, in Hannah's case. Um, and even though she was trying to do everything right, you know, she was still thinking about how to, do,
3: how do, how can I care for him and stop him harming himself? And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, when we think about the ecosystem of how girls and boys are groomed. Mm. Girls to be polite, caring, compassionate, empathetic, thoughtful, always put others' needs above our own. And boys to be those who matter the more, leaders, entitled to things. So it's no surprise. I hear that in most cases, that they're most oftentimes worried about the perpetrator, Mm. And therefore, they put their safety second. And that's one of the real challenges when we do risk assessment using the DASH, because threats to harm self and suicidality normally do feature. But if you get someone who's suicidal and genuinely committed to take their own life, they could take the children and or you with them. That's right. And I think it's really instructive that she said to her mum, if he kills me, who takes the children? Who would look after them? Because... Deep down, she knew what he was capable of. And deep down, most women I talk to, they know. Yep. The articulation of it is something different, particularly if you're talking to an authority figure. Yep. The police, a male police officer, somebody who's not necessarily interested in the nuanced detail yeah. or, or giving you the time or the space. So we go back to, we need the, the professionals who are trained to, and that they have empathy, they have rapport, they have the time, they have interest in the nuanced detail Because people say, well, it's very difficult, Laura, to know the cases which will escalate to murder. Well, actually, it's not. If you take the time to listen and ask the right questions of a victim, actually, it's very clear. Mm. And this was a case that just had all the red flags. I think it was Phil who was talking about his sister. Mm. But he said very clearly, and I 100% agree, you know, I hadn't heard that detail before of Sue and Lloyd speak, but just every... Micro detail, every regulation, every stalking behavior, every transgression, everything that he made her do, this was clearly not going to end well. And she was talking to the police. She was trying to do all the right things. But unfortunately, those who she was talking to, and most mums and dads don't know the risk factors, Mm -hmm. but the professionals should. Absolutely. And that's why I still invest so much time training law enforcement professionals all around the world, and I have had conversations with Queensland police, but we've just had case after case. And I I disagree when people say, well, we can't tell the ones which will. We know coercive control and stalking are the most dangerous behaviours. Mm. When they co-occur and when you've got a threat, we know one in two will carry out that threat. Our knowledge and literature based and research on risk assessment now is that good, but it's just ensuring that professionals are trained To understand what those red flags look like, and then have a problem-solving approach that is multi-agency, lots of professionals round a table, with the victim's voice at the centre of it, making the decisions about what needs to change. Yeah,
2: and I think that you know it's it's not necessarily invisible. I, I can it seems invisible until you start actually just like looking under the surface at text messages or at bank records or at social media, you know, accounts, and actually there's evidence everywhere. And that's what the prosecutor, the specialist prosecutor in Scotland is saying is that like, there's so much evidence. It's only invisible when you don't look for it. You know, it's only invisible when you're only looking on someone's face for evidence of a bruise. But actually the evidence is everywhere.
3: Absolutely. Every case I work, that evidence is overwhelming and it goes back in time. And the victim may not understand that that is part of the pattern, the picture, because they've been conditioned for so long. But I think, you know, it is micro and macro. You've got to bring together how girls and boys are educated, are groomed, are socialised, because an entitled man doesn't become entitled in his 40th year. Mm. He's been behaving like that across his whole life course. Mm. And so, therefore, we know that most of them will be serial. Mm. But it's... It's really not rocket science, and I think the more we can shed light on it, there are answers and there are solutions, but you have to be committed to create real cultural change. And where I land on law reform, as you know, coercive control, that for me was at laying a marker in the sand of what's not acceptable. Mm. And it's not acceptable to do all these non-physical things, and normally with the physical things too, to women to control them. And therefore, if you have that marker, you then start to hear lots more cases, lots more people then start to talk about it. And it's not just about the prevention of femicide. We want to be in far earlier mm. because it's the impact on children. Mm. And I know you know all of this, Jess, but it's for listeners. Cause I think oftentimes people think, Oh, well, you're, ju- you just want to coerce a control law to reduce murder. Well, has it reduced murder in the UK? Mm. But that's not the measure of what we look to. Yes, we want femicides to decrease, but there are many other things like the trauma inflicted on children living in households where there's a domestic abuser and coercive controller. Yeah. And I want to get into those households in the earliest time, you know, being someone who survived things in my childhood. And it's really important we don't then keep creating the next generation of either traumatised children you know, or those who go on to abuse or those who go on to make bad choices mm. because they've been subjected to abuse. It has so many repercussions, doesn't it? It
2: really does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just just getting language around it, you know, like you, I get so many emails from people and particularly after the television series where, you know, one really kind person emailed to say that their friend of 40 years had been married for the majority of the time that they'd known them with a really severe coercive controller and watching the television series had finally just, it had just gotten through all that coercion, all of that thought reform, all of that feelings of feeling, made to feel like it's her fault, she is to blame, she'll never find anyone else. She finally felt validated and she left, you know, and leaving is not the only right thing to do. It's not the only option. But for her at that point of her life, she is reclaiming herself and her friends and family can now properly support her because she's been able to see through what he's been putting into her for decades. And that is the power of putting language around coercive control and highlighting it as a system of entrapment that has particular effects on whoever is subjected to it, and taking that focus away from victim behavior to perpetrator behavior. It's so powerful and it just, it gives victim survivors the language to describe what has been indescribable and then to make the choice that is best for
3: them, whatever that choice is. Absolutely, choices and being informed and having the language. You know, it's, a, it's the same as child sexual victimization or or stalking, having the language to describe it. And I always remember Deborah Newell and her friend reaching out to me and Deborah's case was featured in Dirty John and I produced the, the documentary and have interviewed Deborah many times and I've just produced a sh- uh, an audible production called The First Wife, which is his first wife, Tonya. For 10 years, she was married to him. But the coercive control levels, I mean, before, neither of them would have used that terminology. Mm. But I always remember Deborah messaging me on Facebook and saying, you talked about this thing called coercive control. You haven't met me, but you seem to know me so well. Mm -hmm. How do you know me so well? And I just want to thank you for giving me my dignity back and for validating me that it was something because I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was something that wasn't good. But everyone kept blaming me as if I was the one that was the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think we forget about how empowering that can be, of giving language and, you know, congratulations on the docu series because I think it will help so many people. There will be those light bulb moments for both sides, because we see the perpetrators. We see men who want to change, who are very honest in their humiliated fury, their shame, and these powerful emotions that men don't tend to talk about. Mm. And you can feel their pain. Well, they're the ones who want to do the work. And I hope that it inspires many others to do the work. And for the survivors who are brave enough to speak, you know, some of the cases that you show are absolutely horrific. I, I saw your reaction, Jess, horrified so many times mm. and I'm really upset. You know, you were visibly very moved mm. many times, actually. And I think we forget how terrifying and terrorising these behaviours are for so many. Yeah, And the liberty, freedom, the, the coercive control, talking about it, creating laws, gives to women. It gives them an opportunity to hopefully escape safely, mm. to get to freedom, to be able to make their own choices. And that's so powerful. So I just want to thank you for that. I'm conscious of your time because I know I could talk to you <laughs> for forever and a day. And there's still many things I want to discuss, but perhaps we'll do that on a on another session because I'm conscious of your time. You've yeah. got a little one as well. Yeah, for
2: sure. Yeah, yeah. No, she will be um, making noises inside. <laughs>
3: Well wonderful and I really appreciate you speaking to me and sharing your knowledge and I'll put your book in the show notes and once you know where the docu series will be distributed it's of the same name isn't it see it what is. you made me do yeah that's right excellent is, is there anything else you wanted to mention Jess or reference before we sign out um
2: I don't think so but I just think that there's there's so many products now coming out cultural products that are speaking about coercive control where, where artists are becoming fascinated with it as a phenomenon and are, are turning it inside out and really conveying it in ways that, you know, documentaries and news never will really getting inside a relationship and showing what it looks like and how it feels. And I think that's really exciting. I think we're, we're at, the precipice of major cultural change and understandings of power both interpersonally and how that power those sort of you know corrupt power systems get replicated by authorities and ultimately that can only be a positive
3: absolutely, and I think you know you referencing um, there 's certainly a lot of books coming out, but docu series like Nexium seduce Nexium mm. by. Uh, my, my friend uh, Cecilia Peck, who produced it, a couple of women produced it, and therefore you see coercive control being deconstructed. It's fabulous. Using animation. It's amazing. Did you see it? Yeah,
2: I, I was glued to it. I just thought what an incredible way to explain coercive control in this entirely different context. It's really, uh, like I think, mandatory viewing for anyone who wants to understand it.
3: I agree. And I think the more that we have women making docu-series, movies, you know, who are producing, cinematographers, who are writing, that's why I always say more women in every role, every job, every place where, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, every place where decisions are being made, but also creating content because we just see things in a very different way and we articulate things in a very different way. And we are 51% of the population too, so it's probably about time that we are equal, right? (laughs) I'd say so, yeah. (laughs) Just throwing that out there at the end, controversial. (laughs) But thank you so much, Jess. I'll leave you to uh, jump in and see your little one. I just want to say thank you so much for your work. And it's great to to see your face and to chat with you. And we'll talk again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. I'm jumping back in here and I hope you enjoyed all the knowledge and information shared throughout our conversation do please check out the show notes, which include the law reform petition, as well as links to Jess's book and work and also my work on coercive control and in particular on my law reform work in the UK, America and Australia. It's so important that women's voices are centred in the narrative and are heard and that laws are updated and modernised to reflect our lived-in experiences. So please do take action, be an advocate, and sign the petition. And post it and retweet it also on social media. That would be great, too. So next week, I'm starting a new case. The case of Sophie Toscan Duplantier, who was brutally murdered in West Cork in December 1996, and the case still remains unsolved. Now I've got a number of special guests joining me, starting with Alison Sweeney and Jim Clementi. Sophie and her family deserve justice. So until next week, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios.